What God in Christ has done for all humanity is good news. Great news, the best news. This news transcends time, culture, and all man-made barriers because Jesus came to us full of grace and truth. Full grace overcomes every obstacle because it's based upon full truth. Not everyone is ready to believe that a death on a cross can produce good news. The unbelieving heart does not give up without a fight, but in the end, grace and truth win because the gospel of Christ lives. The Apostle Paul, along with his new traveling partner and co-worker in the mission, mission, Silas, are moving on from a city of Philippi in the 16th chapter. Now they're going to Thessalonica. They're going to travel about... A hundred miles, and that it tells us in verse one when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. We'll, we'll pause there. This was a journey about of about a hundred miles that they traveled, and uh, this journey was again with Paul and Silas and apparently a few others, but. Just kind of a side note as we continue through this this book of Acts. In the 16th chapter, I pointed out how Luke, the author of this book, had joined Paul in Philippi. Or actually a little bit before that, was with Paul in Philippi. Apparently, Luke stayed there in Philippi, and then Paul and Silas moved on. Luke would rejoin them later on, literally down the road somewhere else. Um... Now, they're into this this city named Thessalonica. In your Bible, you have two letters to the church in that city, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And this city was the capital of a region called Macedonia. And I I didn't think to put the map up today, but if you can picture the Mediterranean Sea, it's one of those peninsulas, and and Paul is is on on the north part of the Mediterranean, and he's working his way toward Rome. he's, He's... getting closer to Rome. But as he's done before, if there is a Jewish community, a Jewish synagogue in a new city that he goes to, he goes there first. Well, indeed, there was a synagogue in Thessalonica, and that's where he went first. Another thing to keep in mind about this city is from outside sources, but it it makes sense as you read the story here today, this city had... A very, uh, a very dominant presence of emperor worship. There was a temple to worship Caesar. Now, this was not unique to Thessalonica. There were temples to Caesar all over the empire. Ever since Augustus decided to make himself a god, his successors were doing the same thing because it brought them a whole lot of power and prestige and kind of went to their heads. And well, it, so it continued. And so there was a, an actual temple where people would worship the emperor. Not just give honor to the leader. Not just, you know, respect the king or, or in today to, to respect the president, de- agree or disagree with who the president is. The, the office itself should be respected as, as our leader. 
That's one thing, and to a point that's, that's appropriate and good. But when you worship the leader, uh, that's all wrong. In Thessalonica, they were doing that, and they did it so well that Caesar noticed, and he sent them gifts, basically tax dollars, back to them. Funds from Washington, we call it today. You know, government funds. Well, they were getting government funds from Rome because they were really good at worshiping the emperor. And the town fathers there in Thessalonica, they liked it that way. They got a good thing going. Maybe they didn't truly believe in their heart of hearts that Caesar was a god, but you know what? If that's all we got to say, if all we got to do is show up at that temple and they keep sending the money from Rome, yeah, well, praise Caesar. Yeah, you know, and, and that's what they would do. That's the setting in Thessalonica that Paul and Silas are arriving to. So what we're going to see here is how the message of the gospel, the true message of the gospel filled with grace and truth, as it encounters the real world, as it encounters the rest of the world, geographically further and further from Jerusalem, but still a Jewish presence in that town with the synagogue, we're going to see how the gospel of Christ is reasonable and scriptural. Picking it up at the second verse, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Jesus had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. That's what he was doing. Now, it says he was there for three consecutive Sabbaths. So that means he's there at least three weeks, more likely a month or more. And he probably didn't rush in the first Sabbath day he was there. He would, in most situations, come into town, greet people, welcome, you know, let, let them know who he was, build their trust. He would perhaps set up um, his tent-making business. Silas was a tent-maker as well. And so he would, as quickly as he could, gain their trust, become one of them. And, and as he would meet the other other Jewish people in the synagogue, which is, again, where he began. He, was, he wanted the gospel to go to all, but he always started there if there was a community of Jews there. And so that's what he did. And it says that he reasoned with them. He wanted them to, to put their guard down that they might have already if they heard anything about this new sect of Judaism called the way, or more and more being called Christians, was growing and moving. And for the most part, the Jews weren't accepting it. Some were, many were not. And those who were not were very, very outspoken, sometimes angry, even violent in their reactions. So word of that likely spread, so, but apparently they were open enough to listen and to Reason with Paul according to the scriptures. Now, when it says the scriptures in the New Testament, it's referring to what we call the Old Testament. Genesis through Malachi, the law and the prophets. So you have prophets throughout the Old Testament. Many of them wrote books like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel and, and many others. And then there was the stories 
from in Genesis itself and Exodus and um, a little bit of history numbers in Deuteronomy, not a whole lot, but then there is the time of Joshua and Judges and Samuel and the Kings and the Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. So those are all the history books, and then the prophets are woven into those books throughout the Old Testament. So in general, when it says the law and the prophets, it includes, again, what we call the Old Testament. So he's referring to those books. Now, always keep in mind, too, we are so incredibly blessed to have not just the printed Bible and many, many English translations at our disposal and free for you to buy and to read and to keep and to enjoy and to learn from. Many places in the world, this is illegal to have or people want them and they don't have access to them. And now you can even get it, of course, digitally on your phone through an app. So we have so many ways that we are blessed to have the scriptures at our disposal. To those who have been given much, much is expected. But what did the Jews in Thessalonica have when Paul and Silas showed up? Copies. Most synagogues had a limited number of some of the prophets and probably a lot of the laws. But it wasn't as if there was a full copy of you know, Genesis to Malachi sitting there in the synagogue. There was a handful. That's why the oral tradition and the teaching of the Pharisees in, in the positive way that they provided it about the law and the prophets was important because people would learn because that's all that they had. So whatever copies they had in the synagogue in Thessalonica, they're checking it out. Here's Paul reasoning with them that this Jesus this Jesus from Nazareth did indeed go to the cross, did indeed die on the cross, did indeed rise from the grave, and all of that is in your scriptures. He would point to, he doesn't say specifically which ones, but I'll give you three examples. Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. Portions of those chapters all look ahead to the Messiah his suffering and his resurrection in one way or another. And, there, and there's many others as well. So this is what Paul is doing. He's reasoning with them to, to put your guard down if you have one already assembled in your mind about Christians, if you already have preconceived ideas about who Christians are and, and whether or not they're legitimate or if they're a cult according to you know, the way the leaders in Jerusalem would think. Or is it something that is true? He reasoned with them. Reasonable and scriptural. That's your faith too. It is a faith that can be reasoned, can be talked about. It, when, when, you, when you really boil it down, it makes sense that the one God, that there is only one, would find a way to communicate with us through an expression of his love in a person. And that person showed us the way to him, not just to, to live eternally with him, but to, to know the best way of life here and now, and to have a living body called the church present in this world, 
And, and that, that is something that is reasonable when you have people willing to sit and listen and talk about it. But then also the gospel of Christ is appealing to all people groups because it is reasonable. Now, I want to point out in verse 4, it says, Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Now, let's jump down to the 12th verse. We'll look in a little more detail at what happens in Berea in a moment. But the result of the preaching in Berea says this in the 12th verse, As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So you have different people groups all sharing in the same faith, all believing the same message. First, there is the Jews themselves who already are on the same page in terms of there being just one God. And remember, the rest of the world in that time believed in many gods. There were very few atheists. Now, we're actually going to bump into some of them next week when we look at Athens, okay? But for the most part, everyone believed in not just a god, but many gods. In fact, to believe in just one god was thought to be crazy. So you had people that were accepting of the message who had overcome the resistance of multi-gods and thinking, wow, there really is only one. You know what? That does make sense. Those are called God-fearers. They are not Jews, but they are accepting of the Jewish ways and laws and, and, and worship uh, that there is only one. And so among them, they thought, yes, that makes even more sense that this one God would communicate with us through a person, his own son, going to the cross for us, rising again. Yes, we see it in these scriptures and Psalms and the prophets and Isaiah. So, so there was the God-fearing Greeks. Then there was the Greeks who, up until this point, were still stuck in the many, many gods thing, but probably felt, you know, this is just weird, and it doesn't work. And you know, most importantly, it doesn't speak to my heart. There's something about this message from these guys, Paul and Silas, and this Jesus. I want to hear more about that. And some of them joined. And so they overcame the barrier of letting go of all the gods and reducing it to one, of realizing that they're not Jews, but that's okay, they're welcomed. And then also of the, the, the fact that there is one God and this God sent this one man, Jesus, to die on a cross. Well, that was crazy to most Greek people. A God doesn't die. A God certainly doesn't die on a cross, which is you know execution in the most humiliating way possible, which also says that he must have been a criminal of some kind for him to die on a cross. So for all of those reasons, that set of people had even more barriers to overcome, and yet they did. Many overcame all of that. That's, when, that's why when Paul says the foolishness of the cross, that's what he's referring to. It was foolish to believe that a God would die. But the resurrection was true, and there's eyewitnesses to it, and that's what Paul and Silas were proclaiming so effectively. And then there's yet another group, prominent women, Women's place in the world at that time, it's, it's not always equal here and now, let's be honest. 
But then it was even worse. Now, the Greek world actually did somewhat better job in, in certain areas than did the Jews themselves. If you were to go to a meeting of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, the leadership body of the Jews, it was all guys. And the women were secondary, second class. They had to sit in their own section in the synagogue, which, by the way, eventually found its way into the church early on for a while. Okay? And that was, we'll get to that another time. But women were secondary. But now, people like Lydia and Philippi, a prominent woman, a successful businesswoman in the Greek world, recognizing that, wow, this Jesus is the great equalizer for what is probably the greatest division in the history of humanity, men and women. And there's many other divisions to speak of, and there are many of them are, are horrible, even abhorrent. But here is this gospel message going to all people groups without the barriers. Now, it is hard for the human heart, the human nature that we all share in, to let go, to overcome the obstacles to belief. The obstacle of belief in only one God, or perhaps today in any God at all. The obstacle of uh, how maybe you were taught about God and, and, and how, how you approach God. The obstacle of the division between men and women or other divisions, black and white. Other divisions, rich and poor. There are so many ways that people divide. So the message of the gospel has to, has to pierce through, push through all of the obstacles that mankind erects so people realize this Jesus is your Jesus. He doesn't belong to the Jews. He doesn't belong to the Christian church, although in him we are part of the church he belongs to all of us if we just say yes to him. Amen? If we just believe that he is indeed the one that God has sent. That's the message. That's what's going through. And this is such a world-changing idea in the first century. That, that there is only one God, and that God died, and that God rose again, and that God is here for all people. And all the ways that we divide ourselves are equalized and welcomed at the foot of the cross. It's a world-changing idea. It's a beautiful idea. It's a powerful idea. But there is an idea that will have opposition to it. Opposition to the gospel of Christ can only depend on lies and deception, not on the truth. Now, as I said a moment ago, because of the, the influence and the power of emperor worship in Thessalonica, this message was problematic for the people. And, well, let's, let's see what they did. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas, in order to bring them out to the crowd. But they did not find them. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials. 
shouting. Now I want to pause there and come back to that quote in a moment. That's the middle of verse 6. I want you to hear as a backdrop to that verse. This is why commentaries can be so helpful. The, the commentary I use most frequently for Acts is written by a man, uh, a scholar named Ben Witherington. And this is his book, The Acts of the Apostles, a socio-rhetorical commentary. I want to give him credit where credit is due. Listen to what he says about the theological makeup of, Thess- of Thessalonica. And this is specifically on page 503 and 504. Quote, The essence of this theology was that the emperor was the universal savior whose benefactions and aid should be proclaimed as good news throughout the region, end quote. And he goes on to the next page, quote, local officials would be expected to enforce loyalty to Caesar in order to maintain the peace and help the city stay in the good, good graces of the emperor. End quote. Wow. The emperor was thought to be the universal savior. The emperor should be proclaimed as good news. The word good news in Greek is evangelion. Evangelion. Evangelical. Evangelism. That's where that came from. And the way most Greek people first heard that word was not in reference to Jesus. It was in reference to Caesar. It would even be on the coins that they used. We looked at this last year, the year before, whatever that was, when we looked at the Gospel of Mark. And there would be statues throughout the Roman Empire. There would be proclamations made by, by um, agents from Rome going throughout the, the, the empire, they would have what was called an evangelion announcing the greatness, the good news of the emperor who is to be worshipped universally because of his great provisions. In comes Paul and Silas and other Christians with another kind of evangelion, another kind of good news about a true and lasting, one and only universal salvation Savior in Jesus of Nazareth. These two things were about to clash in the streets of Thessalonica. Back to the middle of verse 6. Quote, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into a turmoil. They made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Now, why would they be thrown into a turmoil? The city officials, because of their fear of Rome, and they don't want to lose the money Rome is sending. They weren't necessarily offended that someone wasn't worshiping Caesar. It was more what Caesar was giving to them in this way. And of course, money wins the day, doesn't it? In most governments, in most cultures, where the money is, the power flows. And so this was why there was such 
a violent reaction even among the Jews who weren't accepting of the message of the gospel from Paul and Silas. And so they could only do the only weapon they had left at their disposal, and that is to lie and to deceive because they couldn't be reasonable. They couldn't even point to the scriptures because they're going to lose that battle. So let's make things up. Let's go out in the city. Let's find some bad characters, it says. Let's form a mob. If you don't have truth on your side, make lies. If you don't have truth on your side, say things and say it even though it's wrong. You know it's a lie. Say it again and again and again and again and people will believe it. And then you have to say it very often for the crowd to get whipped up because of the, of the whole emperor worship thing. And the fact that this was started by Jews is, is, is also telling about them and we'll, we'll, we'll come back to, to that in a moment. It was not based on truth. And then, so they, they move on to Berea. And it says this, As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day, to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But the Jews in Thessalonica, the same group, learned that Paul was preaching the word at Berea. Some of them went there too, agitating the crowd, stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So, not satisfied with whipping up the crowd in Thessalonica, they followed him when they found out he was at Berea and tried to do the same thing. But there is a note here about the Jews in Thessalonica compared to the Jews in Berea. In Berea, they were more noble. They listened to the scriptures. They examined them much more deeply. And while there was a few Jews in Thessalonica that did turn to Jesus, it seems the majority of them did not and then acted violently. And the fact that they got the crowd whipped up and they were the ones saying, look what's happening. They're not obeying Caesar's decrees. Caesar's decrees like worship Caesar, like he's your, your true savior. He is your universal provider. Caesar is everything. Worship him. Jews were doing that. That seems to indicate that the Jews in Thessalonica, while there was a synagogue there, were very compromised. And not in a good way. They were perhaps participating also in the temple to the emperor in order to appease people in town so they could stay in their good graces themselves. And then they'd leave them alone. They still have their synagogue to go to and wanted to do that. In other words, it looks, very, it looks pretty clearly like they tried to have their foot in both worlds. We're going to worship the one true God, 
but we're going to pay in just enough attention to Caesar to keep people happy in town. And when the truth came in Christ, that was exposed for what it was. So I hope that this, this story is, is, is revealing about what your faith is based upon. The, the, the believers in Berea studied the scripture more deeply and they, they checked Paul out according to the scripture. Paul said this, let's go dig some more. What, what copies do we have? What did you learn from, from um, your rabbi when you were growing up or, or other, other teachers of the law? You know, does, does this really say that? Did Isaiah really say that? And they would look into it and consider it with, with, with heart and mind, and many of them believed. And what that tells me is that my faith in this same Jesus has held up all these centuries. It's not something that I made up. It's not something that you made up. It didn't come out of, out of a book last week, last year, or even 100 years ago. It came from God himself revealing himself to people who, who wrote it down along the way. But, but your faith is indeed a reasonable faith. Your faith is indeed a scriptural faith. Your faith indeed stands upon the very word of God, the written word of God, but then also the more important word of God. And I'm not in any way diminishing what's on these pages. Please don't get me wrong. But these pages reveal what, what John wrote in the first chapter, that in the beginning was the word and the word was God. And that word became flesh, and his name is Jesus. So he is the living word. And, and in him, in his life, death, and resurrection, is what your faith stands firmly on right now. A reasonable faith, a scriptural faith, a life-changing faith based upon grace, based upon truth. Father, may your truth go forward in our lives in this new year. May we... Stand firm in our faith in a world that wants to reject faith, mock faith, and tear down faith. May we stay strong in your scriptures, in your word, in your name. Amen.